Welcome to another episode of El Cafecito. My name is Leonardo Casenza. I'm your host for this second season. Remembering everyone that El Cafecito is affiliated to the Latin American Studies Program at the University of Toronto. And we'd like to thank the Office of the Vice President at the University of the Toronto that gave us the awards that made this podcast possible. And now for my introduction. What is happening with Latino families? Um, hi, everyone. It's Maria Jose. I'm really excited to be here once again. And hashtag Justicia para Alejandra or Justice for Alejandra. Let's talk about trans issues in the COVID-19 context. Hey, everyone. It's Anna. And there's another epidemic going on. It's gender violence and it's global as well. Hola, hello, Kyobo. My name is Raquel, and I'm wondering what are we doing to understand the different forms of silence that gender-based violence take place in Latin America? Hello, everyone. This is Estefania Hidrobo. Uh, I'm from the University of Technological of Monterrey, and the pandemic is not gender neutral. Okay, um, we're here to talk about gender relations in Latin America. And I, we pa I passed through many articles to before this podcast. And um, I just went through all these staggering numbers of increase of sexual violence and domestic violence during the quarantine. For example, in Colombia, the number of, of complaints of domestic violence um, increased 175%. In El Salvador, uh, it increased by 70%. In Honduras, there were more than 40,000 cases of violence against women between the period of January and May. And most of these, uh, these complaints are made by women, in general, 60 to 70%. And then the, the rest of this percentage is taken by minors. And, uh, and this gets me wondering, what is happening with the Latino families? Why is there this increase in the rates of domestic violence um, during the pandemic in Latin America? I think the answer to that is that people are forced to stay at home 24-7. So that puts more pressure on women as we are the ones that at the end, due to gender roles and the different stereotypes that people have about Latinx women, that we end up doing all the housework, all the caring, all the even teaching. So I think that when we are forced to stay at home, it's easier to feel irritated and it's easier to have situations of, of violence and just disrespect. So I think it's due to the lack of, or the inability to, to go outside, to stay in contact with other people, to ask for help that has uh, influenced the, the different rates of um, gender-based violence across the region. For sure. Um, obviously, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, domestic violence exists across all genders and like both men, women and people in the spectrum can be victims of domestic violence. But it's important to emphasize the plight of women in specific because, um, for example, at least in the case of Colombia, where the amount of reported incidents, um, as Leo said, has increased by 175 percent. In this particular, like lo just looking at these statistics, 74% of the victims in these reported cases have been women. Of course, there's like an imbalance, so to speak, in regards to who are the victims in domestic violence cases. And yeah, as Raquel said, of course, um, there are heightened high, high tensions in terms of quarantine. Um, especially because um, of the loss of income in Latino households and also because, well, 
I think we can all sort of agree that um, Latino households tend to be really sexist or machista, so to speak. The women are always, have always been put on the role of doing domestic labor and emotional labor, all of it unpaid. Um, while and, and while these responsibilities may, I think, provide women with certain abilities, especially in terms of tense situations, I think men don't really, they like the understanding or maybe the tools that women have developed because of all the roles that they have to take on as teachers, as wives, as um, domestic servants, as emotional support for their husbands and their kids. It's very easy for women to be vulnerable in these situations because now they have to be, especially because of how strict quarantine measures are in Latin America, they have no no really they have no real escape route. So they find themselves in situations that they can de-escalate, I think. Yeah, so in Ecuador, there's this situation where since the declaration of the curfew and the state's emergency, there has been a decrease in the number of complaints for sexual crimes, especially sexual harassment. But this is not actually an accurate representation of the reality because uh, since the lockdown, the resources for women to complain about the sexual harassment has been canceled, not has been paused. So the reason, other reason is that abused women are afraid or ashamed to report it. And they are all, almost all the abuse cases come from their partners at home. So they are living with their aggressors. But there's a new online resource where women can report the, these complaints. And it just came in effect on April 20th. So it's a new resource that not all women has access to because there's a lot of population in Ecuador that has no access to internet or even a computer to do, to make these complaints. And they can't go outside of their homes. So it's a very difficult situation for them to actually report what's happening. Yeah, that's that's true. And, I, and I'm thinking for the kids, for the minors who are affected in these situations, a lot of time reporting happens in schools. So a lot of times the signs of domestic abuse and violence are picked up upon people outside of the home. So without the teachers there, without people, social workers at school recognizing the signs of abuse, a lot of more children are, are you know, being affected in this pandemic as well. Yeah, I agree. So, and, and I started the podcast with the, this quote that I heard at a webinar that I was watching. And it was a webinar held by professors of the uh, University of Guadalajara. And they were saying that we need to be creative with like the ways that we are using to understand the set, like the different forms of silence that uh, gender-based violence takes place, right? And I found that in Ecuador, actually, at least in, in my province, in Pichincha, there's a almost as like something like known, but um, so, so some people receive uh, baskets of, of food and um, yeah, like food, things they need, right? At, they receive these at home. Um, but when they call and uh, to ask for the service, they can say, can I have a red basket? So the red basket represents violence, right? So 
the people at the other side of the of the line will understand these and they will call 911 and they will provide uh, the help that this person needs. But I'm wondering how many people actually in, the, in my province know about this. I have no idea what's the number of uh, people that have access to to this type of service. Uh, but I think this is a very creative way to, to show um, that you, or to ask for help, to show that you are in a, a situation of, of violence. And I think that's a, a great step. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have heard or if you know of any other way that uh, women or any other person can have or can request um, help. Yeah, so I was, when I was doing my research, I found there's a, a phone number in Colombia, in Bogota, in the capital city that you can call, 155. Um, and through the pandemic, because they realized they're getting almost a double amount of calls, they've they've strengthened it by hiring more people to answer calls. But it's mostly complaints and it's run by the city. And I was reading and 50% of the complaints are psychological violence instead of physical violence. And 15% of this violence that was reported was also economic violence. And I find it really interesting that the city itself is um, taking charge and reporting these statistics. So that's one way that people are being able to call, but it's not, it's not coded like you said. So how safe is it to call this number when you're in a, an abusive relationship? I'm not sure. It's interesting how these relation, how this social issue is entangled with relationships in the real life, you know. And this reminds me of this movie called The Second Mother. It's uh, it's it's a Brazilian movie, and it's about this domestic worker. And I've just and it has no has no direct links to sex, uh, gendered violence. But I was just thinking about the role of of women as domestic workers in in this in this context. And how and how Maria says saying how di- how divided and and fractured the f- Latino household can be in terms of the division of tasks, and I've I've come from households where the how the tasks were always divided, and in that sense it was very liberal and open compared to most Latino families, and I have to recognize that. I don't know how are the the situations in your houses. Well. Um... For me, actually, it was a very unique experience because I mostly grew up with my mom, but we were in a very, we were kind of, I mean, in Colombia, almost 50, more than 50% of women are head of their households. And then there's about like, I think 36% or, or something along that number, mothers who are all alone, uh, single mothers, right? Um, and in my particular case, my mom was a single mother, but we were in a very privileged position where she would hire someone else to help us take care of the home. And I was an only child and I was very sheltered. So even though I liked participating in those tasks, I wasn't really allowed to, <laughs> but I, you know, this is not a unique, I think the, the statistics that I mentioned shows that this is not a unique situation in Colombia. Um, and in fact, I'm part of like a very privileged minority, but I can't imagine like how much hard work uh, goes into raising a child on your own or raising a child as, or um, a lot of children, because that's what usually is the common denominator um, 
while being like the main head of your household. It's interesting because I had an experience where we were all alone and doing things all by ourselves, but also with the added privilege of like an, a stable economic situation, which is not the common case in Colombia. Yeah, I have a similar situation to Leonardo in my house where my parents have always told me that the same opportunities they gave my brother, they will give it to me. And that really stuck with me through all my, through my life. And it's been really true. It's not just like words. And, um, but I know that that's also a really privileged position because I know uh, friends, like a uh, girl, girl uh, I'm gonna say that again. <laughs> I know woman friends that they wanted to study abroad like their brothers but their parents didn't uh, let them do that because they were worried about their their security so i'm really grateful about that and uh yeah so for my family uh we well since i can remember we've lived in canada and the reality for my for my parents was very different than their siblings in Colombia. Um, so we never really had any help. It was just kind of my family. But I, I always saw it very divided. But I do have a funny anecdote actually about this because when we moved to Canada, my dad did not know anything about cooking because he was raised like with a very traditional Colombian like stereotype that, you know, men don't have to cook and all this. My dad barely knew how to do anything, right? Um, and then unfortunately my mom got sick when I was quite young. I was in grade three. So he was forced to learn. He was forced to learn how to like do my hair, like dress me up to take me to school, all these things while my mom was recovering. So after that, the household like relationships and division of labor completely shifted because then my mom realized that, hey, this guy actually knows how to do things. Now I'm going to make him do them. So that changed. But I find that in Latin America, like, as Maria Jose was saying, like, a lot of us are privileged, but a lot are not. And 75% of those who work in sanitation and in care work are women in Colombia and, and sorry, in Latin America. And these, they're still essential worker. And these women are still going out to work right now during the pandemic, even though they might stay at home. So I'm wondering if, you know, what, what's happening with these women in, in, during the pandemic? And also what's going to happen in the next months, right? So I'm thinking as uh, we are usually the ones in charge of like raising the kids and taking care of the house um, activities and all that. I'm wondering as many students are not going to go back to school or campus this fall semester, who's going to take care of them? Who's going to make sure that they're doing their assignments? Who's going to do the teaching part, right? So I think this also... I will say even might change the career goals and aspirations that many like women had. And now that because they're they're forced to stay at home, they might have to choose between their professional careers and between who's gonna teach their their children. So there are a lot of questions about this actually and unfortunately I don't think there's an answer that will encompass everything. Because as we have said, not all Latino families are the same. And it's important to consider how, how different our families are, how um, even the familiar structures, how, how they work, the dynamics at home, how, how they are different. So 
it's important to take this into account when talking about these type of issues, but at the same time, working on social and even political programs that can, can help everyone, but I think especially women, because at the end, it's sad, but I think it's true that at the end, women are the ones that are, we are doing like the work, right? We need to take care of that. And I think that's something with the pandemic has, has worsened. So we need to take all these into account when finding solutions to, to all these problems. I agree. And, and, and when we're thinking about who's taking care of the children right now, I'm wondering, and I, I'm not speculating, but I'm wondering if one of the reasons there is, you know, added stress to the family and, and something that might be relating to domestic violence is, you know, men in the family now are forced to confront a new reality where maybe their their wives are going out to work in a sanitation job and they have to stay home with their ch- like their children and if that's a new added stressor and and what campaigns or what are countries doing to you know deal with this new reality like to shift men from only being workers but also caretakers you know yeah so the the role women play as a caretaker is is really big and it starts in a very early age so when i was doing my research uh, I found that from previous crises uh, like Ebola, SARS, H1N1, uh, we've learned that girls sometimes don't just don't return to school because due to economic necessities, boys and girls drop out of school. But we've learned that uh, boys go back quicker than girls to education and girls just don't return. And whether that's because uh, girls are in the labor market or because they are in the caregiving responsibilities of being like uh, taking care of their younger siblings. That's interesting. What was what was your research about? Yeah, about how uh, the lockdown was um, affecting education on kids, especially. I find that really, really interesting because even though I grew up very privileged one of the people who like supported me the most when i was growing up was my nanny um and she like she was the eldest daughter in her family growing up and she like due to her economic situation she couldn't pursue like higher education and didn't even finish school and yet she she came to Bogota to support her family economically. And ever since it's kind of been like kind of the pioneer for her family in terms of like coming to Bogota, finding a job, like finding a better living situation. And <clears throat> nowadays it's also like I think about her, uh, especially because of what we we're talking about in terms of like sanitation and domestic workers, because um, like nowadays she still works with my family and at the same time she has to take care of her child who obviously because of the pandemic is not in school is and she is is this nanny is she living with you or is she moving back and forth every day so when i was younger she used to live with us uh, and then after she had her child she started living with her parents like they live in the same kind of household, but they all pay rent. And so yeah, anyways, uh, so she, and she's the main, like she's a, she's a single mother essentially. And she's not only like the domestic worker at her own home, 
uh, a mother and also at this point to a certain degree an educator even though she's supported by uh, her son's school's teachers but also the domestic worker in my family uh, which is also a huge risk to her but it's also kind of like that's her living income and she needs that to support her son so yeah i think of of that strength but also the burden of of the situation and how the pandemic has you know heightened these like situations for latin american women yeah definitely and in fact um in brazil there are um 45 of the households are are supported economically financially by by women and this was a, a large skip since the 90s which wasn't at percent now has reached 45% and this larger weight on women taking longer hours and taking the extra shifts at home um, just creates additional weights that strains family relationships and in that sense the Brazilian government responded during covid by multiplying by two the emergency relief fund for women that support economically their households which was positive that it went from 600 to 1200 but now there's discussions of whether the emergency relief fund is going to be reduced and it's going to be reduced for these special groups and it's been in discussion in the congress right now but the situation is really uncertain in brazil with regards to this and there are a few tools that we can we can use to support women in their struggle um, one of the numbers is calling 180 um, that is uh, also widely disseminated and used um, in Brazil for quite a while. Um, but I definitely agree that there's been, there's this uh, additional weight upon women that creates so many strains and that the government sometimes won't, able to, won't be able to respond properly to it. I find that really interesting, Maria Jose, you're talking about your, your experience with your nanny. Um, I remember when I would go back to the summers to Colombia, my grandmother had a woman who was helping her in the house too. And the, I was so shocked because I, you know, I grew up in Canada where no one really has anyone helping them in their houses really at all. Um, and she, I remember she was helping me, you know, with my stuff. I was young with like my coloring, but I found out she was illiterate and that, that moment for me, I'll never forget it because I was six or seven and I didn't realize that this was still a problem that was happening. And she was with my grandma for like 15 years and she was single-handedly supporting her sisters, her parents, everyone in her family through my grandmother. And I always felt so, so conflicted about this because she was, I remember she would tell me she'd miss out on milestones from her family, but she was always there to help our our family and and I was wondering I was I remember I was having a conversation with my parents recently and they were telling me especially not so much now but back then my dad would tell me stories about how in his friends houses women who were in these positions were often indigenous women coming down from pueblos to the city and a lot of times they would face abuse from their employers like domestic abuse from the father of the household or the brothers and I'm wondering Right now, a lot of women right now can't be traveling back and forth and they're staying at their employers' houses. And maybe this increase in calls as well is not just from like romantic relationships, but from this employer-employee dynamic. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's the very real possibility. You know, to a certain extent, I find that type of work 
you know, to a certain degree, it can be very demeaning. It can, some consider it a form of slavery, which I think in some cases it definitely is. It's really tough. And I, and I think, although what, among the things that I've read, um, you know, the government, like their response is trying to create uh, more specialized agencies to support children and to have like, to provide family services for people. I think the fact that it's only now that this has come up as some like issue that can be solved really shows the deficiency of these services, like the deficiency that they they are in currently, and they have always been, right? Like I've, I've read that um, a lot of government agencies that were trying to focus on these particular issues didn't even have like a full team of members who could deal with uh, these kind of cases of domestic violence and even sometimes were underfunded, so couldn't even get transportation uh, to go visit the households and see what was going on. Like less than 40%, according to the articles I read, had the proper infrastructure. Like things as basic as having a phone line or internet connection to like properly deal with these cases and not be overloaded, right? So yeah, I mean, I guess it's good that the government is like putting their big boy pants on and trying to do something, but at the same time, it really showcases like how much suffering it takes for the government to actually look at these issues and try to do something. So Maria Jose, <laughs> you touched upon an important point here, which is talking about social assistance services in Latin America. And in Brazil, according to its constitution, social assistance is uh, a right. And we have a universal system of social assistance that has been underfunded for years now. And we had a bill by Michel Temer in 2016 that froze the, uh, the costs in, in, in education, in health, and in, in also social programs. And so we are seeing the effects of this right now, the importance that social assistance has in supporting these families, not emotionally, mostly, and because financially they probably mostly can't, but emotionally, definitely, um, and socially they can support and allow them connect to connect with their communities. And I think that in Latin America, we tend to uh, undervalue the, the potential of social assistance and how it can help Latin American families move forward. Yeah, I think that uh, what the government is doing to help those issues, it's uh, really important. And in Ecuador, for uh, the government had this initiative to have this called WAWA uh, centers. And this WAWA, WAWA, it's a word in Quechua that's uh, our native language, and it's meaning it's little kids. So the Wawa centers were places, daycare centers, where uh, mothers and public workers, especially from markets, could uh, leave their children there so they can uh, work during the day. So it, it can help with the equality on men and women working at the house. But with the pandemic, all these centers closed. So now all the kids are at home and their parents, they have the small, like, especially with little kids, they have to make the decision if whether if one stays and the other was to work and things like that. So 
especially and, and women are the ones that uh, stays commonly and uh, also i wanted to talk about the occupational segregation and that's an issue uh, that is the result of the stereotypes and gender biases that impact the education and training of future generations and this determines to a large extent the pay gaps uh, and the professional trajectories of women and this starts in like at home because of the role of women of caregiving. So in Latin America, 41% of female workers are employed in the social, personal and community service. And this percentage is twice as large as the percentage of men. And many of these women are employed in the education and health sector. And another 10% are domestic employees often in very precarious conditions without any job stability or affiliation to security to social security so this shows how for women role of caregiving were more led to uh, work in education in in careers that has to do with giving care yeah i think it's important to take into account all these statistics that are, are available to address all these issues that, as we have shown, um, it's a like a multi-layer problem, right? And it's important to address each uh, like layer to best address the entire issue. And it starts with what the government is doing, what the society is doing, but also like the individual actions. And I'm thinking now, like, yes, maybe we don't we don't know how the yeah, so it's not only what the government is doing, but also what we can do to help and support each other. And I'm thinking it's just like reaching out to friends and family and asking if they're doing well, offering our help and try to create a, a community where we can feel safe and we can feel that we can trust in each other. And I'm thinking of the term sorority and how I think it's important to build these, um, these communities to reach out to, to friends and family, to offer our help and just support each other during these times. And as I said before, keep an eye on the multiple ways that gender-based violence takes place in, in our countries. Yeah, and I, I find that really interesting that you're saying, like, how can we support each other? Um, especially with the idea of caretaking during a pandemic, it's, it's not as simple as being like, I'll babysit your kids today because you don't, you have to be careful of who, where, who we're interacting with. But um, I was reading an article about this, these family friends in PEI actually, who decided to move in together. So there's uh, three families, two single mothers, and then like a just like the nuclear family, they all moved in together and they all help each other with taking care of the children. The kids can play together. They do online school together. And then let's say Tuesday, parent X is going to watch the children while the other parents do work. And And I find it really interesting. And there's been kind of a push online I've been seeing, at least in North America, to look at different ways of, of caring and especially women to, to care for their children without centering men and creating like communities of care. So I find that that's a, that's a good place to start and finding ways we can support each other right now, which is really hard. Yeah. And I think that we can actually do that. At least uh, a lot of Latino families 
like people that live with their grandparents, people that live with their their siblings, like their cousins, and we have like large families living in the same house, right? So I think it's we we can do that. I just feel that we need to be careful because we don't want we don't want at the end that only women are doing all the work, right? So how are we making sure that there's an equal distribution of um, household activities and who's doing all the caring, all the uh, like just making sure that everything is running smoothly. If it's just women or if it's everyone that is included and that everyone is doing their part to help the family and like later on, like the community as a whole. And, and I guess that that also begins at home and how we educate and raise our boys like I know at least my family's not so severe like we're not so bad but I definitely noticed growing up that my brothers got away with you know not not cleaning the kitchen or not doing these little things where I was if I didn't do it I got in trouble and I think you know encouraging young boys to you know to take care of those things to take care of household chores and and I think it also comes down to play like I have a little niece she's five and I've watched the way she plays with other kids and toys are really marketed like to to assign gender roles to kids like for for little girls it's baby dolls and play kitchens and you know learning how to be a mommy when they're five whereas boys get to build things and boys get to explore and get dirty and use their imagination where I definitely think things are a lot better than when I was a kid, but the, I still see it today with the toys that exist for for Emma, my niece. And it's, we need to start there. We need to start letting boys play with babies and tell boys to play with the toy kitchens instead of the toy tools. And I think, yeah, that's a p- good place to start. Um, yeah, and I definitely, I, I really want to, I really love that you guys are talking about sorority and about gender roles and building community because one of the like other prominent issues that I think are going on in Latin America right now due to COVID is kind of like the violence that uh, trans people are experiencing due to a lot of the measures different Latin American governments have taken um, to kind of structure the pandemic. Like for example, the it's called the Pico y Genero policy, which is um, a policy that calls for men and women to show up on alternating days for basic necessities. Two, the two main countries that I read uh, were doing this uh, were Panama and Colombia. And even though the Colombian government like explicitly uh, tried to say that the police had no right to ask somebody for an ID in order to kind of like validate, so to speak, their gender. Um, there was still uh, a lot of abuse while this policy was going on and therefore ever since May they they completely scrapped it, but I think it's still something that, that really showcased kind of like the lack of awareness about trans issues and also how even how the pandemic even exacerbated the violence towards women who are trans, right? I was reading about that that same policy and the first country that actually came out with that policy was Peru and they've the same problem happened. The Vizcarra was like, oh yeah, no worries. Um, no one can tell you not to go out, but there was still violence, there was still harassment towards trans people and actually the UN threatened the government with like a 
a violation of human rights if they continue with this policy and they they stopped it early on but then Colombia and Panama followed right afterwards which is I don't know why they would but it's as you said it really highlights how in unequal and unaware of like trans and gender relations our governments are yeah um violence against this community is not portrayed in like a normal in like typical media news and if like for example in ecuador if you want to find like what's going on with this uh with lgbtq plus uh, issues you have to follow like a special independent uh, journalists and people are or activists uh, because you won't find like enough information or an app uh, like a very accurate information of the reality in um the main news of Ecuador. Yeah, as um, so I'm doing a, a major in women and gender studies. And the other day I had a conversation with one of my friends from Ecuador. We were talking about feminism and women empowerment. And after this uh, like interview that we had, a lot of people reached out to me because they weren't, like they didn't know about so many things that we talk about, like different concepts, even the term, um, intersectionality like a lot of people don't know what it actually means and how can we use it to to describe the different oppressions that people people experience and i do think that at least in ecuador there's a lack of knowledge of gender relations and even like in general just gender studies and how can we make sure that our that not only the laws but also the different uh, programs run by the government are gender inclusive and unfortunately for what I know this is something that it's supposed to be taught in schools during like the sex that is I know that it's included in the sex education curriculum but at least in my school we, we never talk about this right and I was talking to a professor from Ecuador and she was saying that unfortunately a lot of schools they they choose what they want to teach and like what they want to leave out and this is one of the, the things that they want to leave out and I don't I think this is because two reasons first because they don't know how to approach the issue and two because and second it's uh, that they don't know about the topic so I do think that we need more people that are special that have specialists or that are really prominent in their fields of studies and how I think it's just important to have these um, these people at the, the ones designing and making the laws and making the programs because we need to make sure that our entire system is, is gender inclusive. And I think that's really reflected not only on the policy scale but in social relationships with um, not, not only with Latin Americans but I find that feminism is a dirty word and people don't like if you say I'm a feminist depending on who you're talking to, they're going to be like, why? Like, that's why would like men, men are equal to women and all this. And it's really frowned upon to talk about, um, you know, feminazi, all these yeah. terms that are, they're very, very prominent in our communities. And so how we're discouraging women and men from talking about these issues. And I actually had a conversation with my, my friends the other day. Um, one of them, he grew up in Ecuador. And he was telling me that, like, he, you know, before he engaged in this, he used to say, oh, you feminazi, oh, you this. And until recently, it wasn't until a girl that he knew came out and, you know, had a discussion about 
how she was like you know being basically abused by a guy that he knew then he realized and he's like oh man like these are important conversations we need to be having about machismo about all this internalized misogyny but it's so discouraged so that's another place where i think that work needs to be done if we want it to get to the policy level yeah Totally, totally. I think that education plays an important and an important role. One of the, I was very shocked because one of the questions that I had in this interview was saying that why, like they were asking if femicides actually exist, that they were saying that uh, men are also being killed and no one is uh, like being an activist about that. And I was, for me, just shocking that a lot of people don't actually believe that femicides femicides happen in Latin America and happen daily and with the whole pandemic at least I know in Argentina in Mexico cases of femicide are increasing uh, daily so it's, it's it's shocking that we don't know about this I think there's just a, a lack of education about just women and gender studies and how can we be inclusive how can we make sure that our societies are respectful towards everyone and that our system is promoting Uh, equality of opportunities, equality of like, access to services. It's something that we need to work on because it, it really matters and it will make such a huge difference in our societies. And I'm just think, thinking about all the work that needs to be done in Latin American countries about this. Uh, but we're going to do it. I, I'm a firmly, I'm a firm, I, I really believe in that as a person that is studying that I know that there's a lot of work to be done but I'm very excited to do these things but it's important to have uh, a community right it's not only like one person job to educate everyone but it's something that needs to be done with the support of, of everyone yeah I completely agree having this kind of conversation is very difficult among our friends and even family and as a woman in engineering I really like to talk about the importance of uh, presence of women doing uh, uh, being in fields that were considered only for men and I have all And I have all like family and friends reaching out to me and saying like, why is it an issue or why is it important? And like, as we said before, uh, the numbers of uh, uh, women taking jobs or careers uh, that are similar to caregiving is like the answer to why we need to talk about these issues, to why we need to see what kind of toys or girls are playing with and what kind of conversation are they hearing where their mothers are like the ones that stay at home or and the, part, the dads are the ones that are doing like the engineering kind of jobs and all those things. And it's, it's really hard to talk about to to talk about this, especially with friends from Latin America uh, who believe that it's equal now because we all have access. Oh, well, like we, there's no a policy that says women can't study this or that like yeah. in the old days, but it's still, a, the bias is still there. So it's, it's still an issue and we need to address that and talk about that. Yes, of course. I actually really agree. I think it's a very prevalently sociocultural issue. I think talking about trans people in general is even harder just because, you know, like 
it's hard enough being a woman in Latin America, but I think it's even harder being a trans person just because of the fact that, yes, you are limited to access certain areas <clears throat> as a woman in Latin America, as a woman, sorry, but just existing as a trans person is put into question in the Latin American context. And that's, that's horrible. Like, what else can you say about that? You know, um, with the whole uh, policy that I was talking to you guys about, um, even though, you know, the government was encouraging acceptance and giving orders not to ask people for identification to validate their gender, which, by the way, is kind of particularly problematic for people who identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming, because like, even though, for example, the mayor of Bogota was telling trans people to to do their grocery shopping in the day that, uh, like, to go out on the day corresponding to the gender that they identify with the most, it's still on a binary. And and even, even then, they were discriminated against uh, by people in their communities. They were being denied access to supermarkets. Uh, they were being like assaulted physically, even psychologically. There was this one case in Peru where police forced trans women to do sit-ups while chanting, I want to be a man. You know, that's the degree of like viciousness that exists in these communities. And it's not only that, it's not only leaving police as the only invigilators and judges of identity, which exposes trans people to abuses of power and violence. It's also the lack of access to healthcare that they're suffering now due to the closure of clinics, which is very important to, for trans people because of hormone treatments and HIV medication. You know, it's not only that, like, it's, 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 it's not only the violence, but it's also like, a, a personal health issue is it's not even you know they can't exist they can't have access to things that we as women fortunately have to some degree or another um and i i was talking i started this episode saying hashtag justicia para alejandra because i think she's somebody who kind of really whose case really encapsulates everything that is wrong with how we perceive trans people in Latin America. Um, Before you continue, can you tell us a little bit about her story? So yeah, can yeah, yeah. About it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So she's a Colombian um, trans black woman. She was a sex worker. She was HIV positive and um, she died because of medical negligence. She was living with other trans sisters in a household and one of them noticed that she was having trouble breathing. Um, so they called the paramedics and because she was HIV positive, she disclosed her HIV positive status. And they, the, the, the roommate who like experienced, experienced this whole thing described it as like, when they found out that they were surrounded by uh, quote-unquote maricas, the, the paramedics kind of lost that sense of urgency. They told her not to worry about it. They allegedly even left her lying there without doing anything and went out to drink and smoke. And she ended up dying in the early morning. 
and what even caused more outrage is that um, they mishandled her her dead body because um, it was about 15 hours later that they actually went to pick up her corpse. And what's even more troubling is that, you know, the cause of death is unknown and she also ended up being cremated. And like the government is essentially saying that they didn't have enough paperwork uh, and they and she didn't have like close relatives to kind of respond for for everything, which uh, isn't true. And so the trans community is now looking for justice because she didn't die because she was sick or because she was HIV positive. You know, she could have survived if only the stigma that her existence like implied, uh, you know, had been ignored you know like she she should have been she should have been taken care of she should have been aided and she wasn't because she was trans because she was a black woman and because she was a sex worker and because she was hiv positive you know i the reason why i started the episode with that is because i really thought it was like a really important thing that's going on and that i wanted to make other people aware of thank you for sharing that um information. I think that this case proves why intersectionality really matters and how it reflects the importance of talking about all of these different issues and addressing them, right? And also for us to educate ourselves and be more aware of our privilege and how we even use it just for our benefit without considering what many communities, many, many other people are experiencing because they're different than us, right? I just really hope that as not only like the Ecuadorian society, but the Latin American society as a whole will be more open to discuss all these issues and will be actually doing things to address them. Um, so we just to because we don't have more, we don't want to have more cases as Alejandra's. Wait, her name was Alejandra, right? Yeah. 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 We 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 should not allow that these to happen again. Yeah, I definitely agree, Raquel. And with this sadder notes, I think I can close this podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for coming and participating. And as always, El Cafecito is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and I'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.